Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, the show dedicated to the private investor, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. We want to show you how to cross the divide from residential investing over to commercial property investing. Through interviews, tips and lessons learned, we share experiences of investing and give you the inspiration, knowledge and confidence to enjoy this great cash flowing strategy. So let's get started. It's my real pleasure to introduce you to Mike Stenhouse today. That's Mike Stenhouse of Mike and Victoria Stenhouse, host of the very successful Inside Property Investing podcast, living the property dream with extended periods of time on a catamaran and all his sailing adventures with two dogs and now a beautiful daughter. I'm also continuing development back in the UK. They've been enjoying this lifestyle and now have, Mike, is it 22 properties in the pipeline just now? Uh, I think 24, but yeah, right there or thereabouts. My research is out of date already. So welcome to the show, Mike. Brilliant having you here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, Jerry. And I, I know we, we joked about this before we started recording, but two years in the making. So um, forgive the, the the delay in getting here, but I'm, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad you finally got me. And we have so much more to talk about, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's been a it's been an interesting two years, right? So um, it, should, we, well, it should give us some good good content. I think did we when we had had our conversation last time? You kindly put a podcast out with me on your show, and I think was it September twenty? I mean, yeah. I think it was COVID time anyway. Yeah, sure so it it, yeah, it was there or thereabouts. So um, yeah, it's been it's been a good couple of years. So you've been podcasting for is it seven years. I think this is our seventh year anniversary yeah. in a week or so. Wow. I mean, it's tremendously successful, listened to by a lot of people. Um, maybe you could just give us um, just a snapshot of where you are right now with business, with your property business. And just for those that haven't listened to your podcast and don't mm -hmm. quite know who you are, you know, just give them a bit of context. And then what we'll do is we'll jump back to maybe the start and go through some of the, the learning stages, right? Sure. So, um, geographically, we are in Stockport, which is uh, it kind of goes against what you were just saying about life on the catamaran. I don't know. We, we've mentioned this a few times. We actually sold the boat in November, yep. and we are now land lovers again. That's it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's been a bit of a, a change of pace for us, and, and settling back into a house and all that fun. So um, yeah, Stockport, northwest of England, been based down here. God, I, I've almost Jerry. I, I kind of I, I, I shudder to think this. I've almost been out of Scotland as long as I was there. I moved down to university at Lancaster when I was nineteen, um, and I'm now thirty-five, I think. Um, so it's getting up to that like fifty percent. I don't know if I can call myself Scottish anymore. <laughs> I still do, of course, and the accent comes out a bit stronger when I'm chatting to you. Yeah, that's um, right. But um, yeah, so we 
uh yeah geographically northwest of england and we just focus in and around here you know i feel like we can have real expertise on our doorstep it makes it easy we're fortunate that there's plenty of opportunities around us so that is great um started off i suppose like most people do kind of accidentally um or unintentionally maybe is a better uh a better way of putting it with some you know single lets and then into accidental hmos and then purposeful hmos because we thought hey this cash flow is great uh this could get us out of the day job uh, i was i was really keen to to get out of corporate life i didn't hate the job by any stretch i was well paid and relatively easy but i just wanted to be kind of be my own boss as the cliche goes um so hmos were the route to that for us uh and then a couple of years later after focusing on them victoria was able to jump ship as well so we've both been out of the corporate world for eight years or something like that now she's kind of less involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business now she was very hands-on once upon a time um and uh yeah gradually our, our focus has shifted through hmos still into commercial purchases to turn into hmos and then commercial to turn into single lets and service accommodation and then we ended up hanging on to some commercial stuff for commercial sake as well so yeah, a bit of a, a sort of mixed pot. I like to call it diversity. Some people would say it's a lack of focus or strategy, but you know, it's it's all good. Um, and it's kind of brought us through to today. Like, you know, I said I bought my first flat in Kirkcaldy when I was eighteen, so seventeen years in the industry. Although periods of time at the start, there was a couple of years we did nothing. But it's a nice figure to to be able to to say we've been doing it for a while. We've learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. Um, and uh, yeah enjoy it i think is the main thing you know love love the process of of finding buildings bringing them back to life renovating chatting to people uh you know it's a quite a sociable industry as well so it's 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 always a good dinner party conversation um so i i love what we do and it's uh you know it's it's, it's great to be able to have these conversations with people as well who are equally passionate brilliant i want to i want to delve into that whole um strategy diversification later on right mm. but it, but you actually purposely moved down to stockport manchester that area to develop your property didn't you that yes was, so so that was quite decisive yeah it was we we were up in newcastle that was where the corp we were working for procter and gamble on their grad scheme uh, they got a big service center up in in newcastle we were in it project management that's where we met and like i say relatively cushy job that's where we started investing a bit more seriously with our first hmo and a few flips but then when it was a decision to step away from the corporate world there was nothing tying us to newcastle obviously me being from scotland victoria is originally from manchester again we were having a conversation about kirkcaldy we maybe wouldn't be as disparaging on the on air um <laughs> it's it's not the most desirable place in the world so we kind of we 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 you know we weighed up what are our options manchester it's a great city bigger than newcastle we'd been there for four years and loved it but felt like we outgrew it weren't ready for london like that doesn't appeal to me manchester was this kind of nice middle ground um and you know from a property point of view it was great there's uh there, there's another reason as well which you know i i've shared in the past but i don't talk about massively because it was a, a rather disastrous part of my uh my career victoria's dad's had a very successful letting agency just north of manchester for a decade plus um and i was like okay this is my escape route mom i want to leave the corporate world and go and be a property investor no you can't do that don't be an idiot okay mom i'm gonna leave the corporate world to go and work with robert and we're gonna grow up his <laughs> letting agency business okay well that's maybe a bit more of a balance and at the back of my head it was always like a stepping stone into just being a developer 
so did that we opened a second branch uh and i was i was too busy scouring right move for deals and like you know i'm, I'm not a salesperson so the, the, all the letting agency stuff of like knocking on doors like it just it didn't appeal to me so uh we we very quickly went back from two branches to one branch uh, i apologize profusely to robert for wasting all of his money <laughs> um and uh by that point we'd, we'd done a couple of deals in the the year or so that we 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 had a trial with that letting agency business um so then at that point i kind of said yeah no this like we can we can keep going with this so manchester yeah it was it was strategic in as much as it was better than Kirkcaldy. um and also you know victoria's family connections here it felt like a, a nice a nice move for us brilliant okay and, and i know you really um like me you you particularly like the use of goal setting in mm. your strategy oh, yeah. and what you're doing so yeah you've maybe been slightly flippant about direction but you, you know i know you focus in on things for that longer term and i think do you use the um the strategy with the 12 week 12 week year do you try yeah. and do that a little bit yeah, yeah. use that 90 day strategy that's something Absolutely, that we do it's yeah. really really useful and you tend to this is not where I wanted to go, Mike, but just because you've brought that up, that part of it. So you, um, from memory, um, you tend to work on five-year goals. Is that really your the centre of your focus? Yeah, I mean, I guess when we think longer term than that, it's really about what we want to achieve from a personal point of view. What does our life look like? Um, so, you know, we want to be location-free. That's, that's a big driver for us, um, more so than time freedom. Like, I quite enjoy working. And even when we've spent the past four years on the boat, that was always very uh, intentional that I would continue to work whilst yeah. we were were on the boat. Location freedom, the ability to you know go and travel whenever we want for as long as we want, not just four weeks holiday a year, but move to a different country if we want to. Um, that's been important to us. So longer term, we want to build a business that continues to give us that flexibility. Um, we also have, I suppose, a, a, I guess like a stretch vision, which is to create 500 new homes in and around Stockport, South Manchester, um, which is, you know, maybe a 10 year goal. It might take us 20 years to get there. I'm not sure. Uh, we might never get there, but it's a nice big target for us to aim for. But then, yeah, I guess on a, a, a more, you know, strategic or tactical basis, um, we have uh, a sort of annual plan. Yeah, three to five year idea of where we want to get up but then that that 90 day sprint that you mentioned that that is really what you know day to day when i wake up and i'm thinking what we're working on today everything's driven by those those 90 day goals excellent okay and just just a little bit more context for people as well you to allow you to do some of that movement or going going abroad for several months at a time mm. you have started to build up a team there so yeah. you've, you've got it you've structured um a team around your lettings development and um, well you can tell us mike what 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 are, what are the key areas that you've passed off to others so first hire was a virtual assistant who does you know did, did actually a lot of stuff and continues to work for us the first hire that we made um she's jackie she's based in the philippines and has probably been with us for uh, since we launched the podcast actually wow. um but yeah that was just uh there's more stuff coming in than i've got time to do and some of this is relatively boring admin stuff and i think the the first thing that uh we wanted to outsource was the property management side of things originally that was my job then victoria quit the corporate world and that was her job but neither of us particularly enjoyed it we looked at an agency 
um, we, you know, we, we toyed with the idea of, of outsourcing it to another company, but with the, the, the complexities of HMO management versus single lets, we just didn't really feel like there was anyone who could do it as well as, as, as we wanted it to be done. We'd lose a bit of control and a bit of the, the connection that we had with our tenants. So property management was the first thing that we outsourced. And that was whilst we were still in the UK because we wanted to focus on what we thought were higher value tasks where our skill set lay where our, you know where we could bring the most value to the business and then before we went away we realized that i couldn't feasibly manage them from abroad without ever being on site so we went through a couple of iterations of that uh one was a a kind of main contractor slash employee you know he, he was self-employed but exclusively worked on our projects lots of technical expertise we'd worked with him on our projects for years prior to that so the trust was already there which was great uh, and then laterally, we actually hired somebody else full time to to just focus on those projects who could take on more of the responsibility than than Cy could as the the sort of main contractor. Uh, Will, who now works for us, also like deals with it end to end. So you know, planning and uh, the conveyancing process right through to you know some of the refinancing and and handover to property management. He could just take on a bit more scope than than the contractor was able to. Interesting. Does Cy um, deal with? subcontractors or you do with main contractor uh so most of our projects we work with subcontractors we'll package it yeah. up um on our larger projects we will typically use a main contractor for like shell and core so to get as watertight yeah. and then we usually still do the internal fit outs we'll bring in our subcontractors again to to finish it off interesting yeah that that's something that i think all of us struggle with that that because that's a bigger piece more complicated finding somebody has a skill set but also it's not just about um finding the buildings or designing out the space but it's also about how they operate so your experience of running hmos makes you understand how actually it should be designed and how it should be constructed and and having people on your team that understand the end goal is really important because often you you end up with these subcontractors that come on and their their objective is get the job in done and get out and you're left with it yeah right? Yeah. <laughs> so having somebody who actually understands what you're trying to have at the end is really important. So that, yeah. I think bringing them in house, you, I, I do struggle to think how you could do that when you have such a specific type of customer in mind with an external contractor. I've really struggled with that. Yeah, and I, you know, again, like you say, it's it's where a lot of people struggle. It's why Will performs a really key role i guess because he's employed by us so whilst he's not physically doing the work he is our voice you know he can be there a lot more frequently than than i could be um and i suppose you know it's what we try wherever possible we try to stick with our contractors for a period of time you know it's not always about finding the cheapest people it's if we've got a relationship and they've done projects for us in the past and they know a bit about what we do um that does really help it doesn't always work out but yeah that that um that focus on the bigger picture rather than just, okay, I need to run cables from A to B, but actually, okay, is this going to be an HMO? So we need to think about the fact that Mike, the owner of this is going to be paying the bills for it. So we need to think about the the efficiency and you know the, the ideal layout for somebody who's maybe going to be spending more time in their bedroom because this is an HMO versus a single let versus service accommodation where, oh yeah, we need to run cables to the front door for the smart locks that they use. If we don't have to run through that with every contractor every time, it it, it definitely helps. So sure. we we do try to stick with them where possible. But I mean, the past couple of years have just been 
chaos. So it hasn't always worked out like that. <laughs> okay, right. So we've spoken about HMOs and mm. we've spoken about goal setting and various other things, but HMOs, then um, doing some SA, some buy to let. Mm -hmm. And this has evolved pretty much into exclusively buying commercial and yep. converting it into resi. With yep. some exceptions, some some you keep as commercial, which we'll maybe come on to, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. but that commercial to resi space is something that has been talked about more and more in um, forums, online, on you know, et cetera, et cetera, social media. Um, but it's not always straightforward, is it? I think your strategy with HMO, sometimes there are planning issues, right? Sometimes you have to change tack in the middle of of your kind of process there. But but you've now got to a point where you've got like a bit of a, a range of strategies to deploy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know there was one recently where I think you had an initial plan, you've had to maybe change direction slightly. Can you maybe just talk us through that and how yeah. you dealt with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's uh, I mean, for, from from my side, you kind of have to laugh at these things, otherwise you would cry. But um, a, a frustration is probably the the simplest way of putting it. It was uh, an office purchase, vacant office that had been vacant for you know six plus months um, in an area uh, where you know it's kind of it was on a busy main road, so not really suitable for like family accommodation. Um, but not a huge demand for office tenancies either. We like that kind of stuff where it's in that middle ground of, uh, certainly for HMOs, we find that, and again, this is a, a caveat, so I'll simplify it, but don't misquote me. Um, HMOs can work in in area, in more areas than you would put a family home to live in. They don't necessarily mm -hmm. need big back gardens. Uh, you know, being on a main road can be a good thing as long as you've got decent windows and, and insulation in there because actually it's close to bus stops and town centers and all yep. that stuff. So that's the short version. Um, so for us, this was perfect candidate for conversion. Um, it's in an Article 4 area, which is HMO specific, but basically means down in England, permitted development rights have been removed. Um, no, that doesn't mean we can't create HMOs. We had one approved 200 meters down the road uh, a year previously. So we're like, you know, councillor fine with HMOs. Building lends itself well to an HMO conversion. Let's crack on. Relatively low planning risk from our point of view. So we made an unconditional offer. Um, we bought it. We submitted the planning application. What we didn't account for was the neighbor factor. Um, and uh, Tracy, Karen, uh neighbor backing onto our property um got her clipboard out and went and collected 50 odd signatures from other um other neighbors saying that they didn't want an hmo there now the the usual um arguments against an hmo we don't want ex-offenders and uh you know drug addicts and, and convicts living in, in our back garden house. yep yeah over over population you know too many people living in there uh and parking uh, you know, they're they're the kind of main ones that we usually come up against. Now, HMOs are at every level of the spectrum. Our ones are pretty nice, pretty high end, pretty swanky. We get a good, really good caliber tenant in there. Um, parking, okay, that's always going to be an issue. But for me, that's uh, that, that's not really a, a subjective thing. That's something the council dictate the parking requirements. If we can meet them, fine, we've ticked that box. The issue was because there was so much neighborhood unrest at the idea of our drug addicts and ex-offenders living in this house. A local councillor got involved. It was going to get called up to committee meeting. We had a conversation with the planning officer and he said, OK, you've applied for, I think it was either a six or a seven bed HMO. Best we can do is a four bedroom 
HMO, which doesn't really work for us from a numbers point of view. Um, we kind of overspent for a four bed to make sense. So then we're back to the drawing board thinking, okay, well, we can either push this through appeal and we will probably get it because we, we take all the boxes from a planning policy point of view. There's very little that they could push back on. Um, you know, minimum space standards, what we provide is, is usually well over that from a bedroom size, from the amount of communal space, number of bathrooms and so on. Again, like you said, the parking would tick that box. There wasn't much from a policy point of view that, that could really be objected to. Um, but appeals processes can take a long time, you know, six months, 12 months. We didn't really want that delay. So our plan B was to convert it into to three flats, um, lower ground floor basement into one bed ground floor into a one bed and then uh first floor and loft space into a two bedroom flat depending on the project would vary you know depend how aggressively we proceed to planning on it but um we with this one both work out more or less the same the three apartments would actually be worth more gdv worth more sure. than the hmo uh but lower lower income so we're gonna get it valued for higher get more of our cash back out um so our return on investment will be higher, albeit our monthly cash flow will be less. And I like cash flow. So, you know, as long as it meets our minimum ROI, I would rather have had the HMO and just get that extra money coming in every month. But the, the three apartments wasn't a bad outcome. Um, but I mean, the irony of that is with a one bed apartment, that could be two people. We've got two of them. So that's four. And then the three bed flat, that could be three people. So we're up at the same number of occupants that we would have had with the HMO um you know same number of parking issues like it's just the the, the arguments for on oh, hmo doesn't work but flats do it's you know it, it gets into the, the the sort of politics of local councils and stuff which is the kind of unforeseen or unmanageable uh, aspect yeah. of any any planning application uh, but it happens and you just need to kind of think well do we cry and sort of uh, declare bankruptcy or do we crack on and find another route through find it find another solution that's right and just tell me was that uh more of a traditional so you said it was office mm -hmm. was it more of a traditional building that was built for resi in the first place yeah exactly and that most of what we buy was resi once upon a time yeah. um so traditional housing stock large terrace buildings that have been at some point converted into office space uh, and we're just turning it back into residential yeah but yours your strategy has evolved a bit from there too now because you're buying um commercial for resi where there's at least a shop unit mm -hmm. or it was a brewery right or you know there's been different um occupations no uses for those buildings that aren't just offices that were residential are now going back to residential makes sense because because people i think who are in resi and most of our listeners are in resi and, and looking to move into commercial there's that thing about right the residential stuff if i do shops and uppers which is mm -hmm. a shop on the ground floor and then convert upstairs into resi i kind of i understand that i can get my hands around that because that's got residential element to it but some of your deals now when i'm looking at them Mike, some of them are clearly commercial buildings yeah there's not any residential um uh, precursor here this has always been used for commercial yeah so that that's a bit of a step up and and it does maybe leave some of the competition behind which is mm -hmm. which is great and reduces the numbers of people looking at them but it also brings in its own challenges right so when you've moved on to those sort of projects what's been your top three things that have been the diff the hardest bit to get around when you're doing those commercial to resi developments appreciate some of them may end up with an element of commercial as you mentioned back at the start you might end yep. up with that. but what what are those sort of things that people need to think about when moving from resi commercial resi to 
right, here's a commercial building. Looks like a commercial building. Uh, let's make this into something that somebody can sleep in. I mean, again, I'd say the first thing comes back to, to planning across all of our projects. Planning is one of the things that we really want to have ironed out before we are overcommitting to it. And that doesn't mean having planning approved. We're not often making conditional offers, but we want to have a good level of certainty either through our own research or usually from our planning consultant that, you know, planning from a policy point of view is okay. And then we can get into the realms of, okay, well, we might still have a battle with councillors and neighbours, but that's something that we'll just have to to deal with. Um, on these these larger buildings, I mean, there's, and I, I don't know that this always, you know, there's a, a cross-border translation here with permitted development rights and, and, and so on. Um, but certainly in, in England, there are some pretty favorable permitted development rights that uh, exist for commercial buildings to convert into residential. One of the biggest changes that was made a couple of years ago was the minimum space standards came into effect for PD schemes, which I think was a positive. Um, You know, I think some of the schemes that were being developed under permitted development with these tiny little studio type units, um, it's just not a nice place for people to live. So I'm glad that you know they they changed in some ways to make um, make the the requirements more arduous, but equally they've opened up some opportunities with uh, airspace development on detached buildings, even on uh, attached buildings. There's some there's some scope to to increase the height of the buildings. From a planning point of view, it's always um, it's always one of the biggest challenges that we have faced just making sure that what we want to do is is in some way feasible. feasible yeah um but looking for i suppose looking for ways to to add value that other people might have missed as well right um so that gives us a bit of an advantage if we can understand planning policy better than other people have maybe mm-hmm. understood it i think the second challenge uh, and again this probably applies broadly to to all commercial property is that um, we we it's, it's more of a personal frustration, but we see it much more in the commercial space than the resi space. This idea, land banking is maybe not the right term, but commercial property owners who are just sitting on stuff and doing nothing with it. Vacant, derelict, really bringing down, you know, Kirkcaldy High Street. There's a bunch of stuff there that's just sitting empty. Um, but it's the same in, in every town. And you think, you know, I, I personally believe that it should be use it or lose it. The council should come in, have more CPO rights to come in and say either develop this, bring it back into use, or we're going to force you to sell the asset. Because it's such a shame that there are people looking for deals. Uh, there's money to be spent. There are people looking for homes and for shops and offices. But there's so many buildings that are just sitting there vacant. So, you know, a big part of uh, what I do is looking for for projects. And I will spend years trying to chase down owners of buildings, trying to have a conversation with them about selling all the time. They're just sitting on these these vacant properties that are doing nothing for for the economy or for the people that are crying out for a roof over their heads, either from a a resi or commercial sense. So, yeah, I think I think the the, the local authority or central government could be doing more to, to force people to use the buildings that they've got rather than just sit on them that's maybe too political for for uh for this conversation but you know i wouldn't have any qualms with them saying you've got a building bring it into use or bugger off and let somebody else do it um so yeah vacant buildings that are ripe for development but you just can't progress to deal with um and then i guess the third thing i think is um you know finding that perfect size you mentioned that you know we've started scaling up some of the projects that we are looking at i'd say we have done commercial conversions that are too small 
I wouldn't say we've done ones that are too big, but I, we, we, we have certainly realized as we have scaled up that there is more complexity, there are more costs, and there probably is a sweet spot for the type of thing that we're looking for, mm -hmm. maybe of around you know, four, five, six units where we can get in and out pretty quickly. Planning isn't overly onerous. We don't need to go to, um, you know, like even just things like uh, professional fees, M&E surveys and reports. And like it, it just it, it can really add up and eat away into your profits that you don't necessarily have com that complexity on, you know, a shop with two apartments above it. Mm -hmm. um, but you do as you get into uh 1970s office building that you're tearing down the entire facade and then potentially putting additional story on and you've got lift shafts to install like you know all of that can, yeah. can add massively to the complexity so trying to find that right size as well has been a, a challenge that we're, we're still figuring out as we go yeah scale that's interesting that point because you find with with the type of stuff i do as well with commercial lettings you i are fairly early on i worked out a kind of I guess investment criteria based around factors like that. What the mm -hmm. minimum size it needs to be, um, because the overhead and the complexities of actually doing the work is either shared amongst two units or twenty units, right? Um, but it does get it, it can get more complex. But equally, that's some of the barriers to entry, isn't it? And, yeah. and as we do those smaller projects, we learn some of the things that we're going to need for that scale and, and everything else as we move on. And one of the um, buildings that I think you're doing, you're you the warehouse that you're doing right now there's mm -hmm. a warehouse that actually you're you're taking that down is that right so that's yeah. a, so that's actually a full redevelopment that one yeah so it was um again partially original resi it was this this street is uh you know if you think sort of coronation street manchester red yep. brick terraced housing down both streets halfway down on one side there are um two semis small semis with a vacant a, a car park next to it and then they've filled in the garden at the back of these two houses with a warehouse it's been a, a distribution center for a number of years um so we are the the two semis we're turning back into two houses and then in the car park next to it we are building two additional houses so it'll become a terrace of four uh, and then the warehouse at the garden that's getting demolished single story extension at the back and then garden space for these four houses interesting so no. part conversion part new build is there actually going to be, remain much? There's not going to be any commercial left on that one because no, that it's all residential be street. Really, resi, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, from from a planning point of view, there, um, that that's a really easy one. It's commercial in a residential setting, so it's kind of out of place. Uh, we're not talking about anything contentious that the neighbours will get up in arms about HMOs or you know, serviced accommodation or anything like that. It's just four houses, single lets um no nobody really and i was you know i i i never like to 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 say uh with anything with too much certainty but i was like surely nobody's going to object to this and thankfully no that that was a a pretty simple one good okay and let's just touch on how did you actually find that project uh it was through an agent um but through an agent we've got an existing relationship with and you know it was kind of not it wasn't off market it was with an agent and you know i i love when people talk off market and it's sitting on right move and i'm like, okay especially when you know you go into right move and it's like this off market opportunity won't stay around for long and i'm like it's on bloody right move it's not off market um anyway little bug bear in mind um so yeah it was with an agent but um you know we kind of got in early not exclusively you know he's got a handful of people that he knows if one of them offers on it they will follow through and we do and i think that's that's helped us over the years anything we've bought off him or anything we've 
uh, agreed heads of terms on, we've followed through on. So, um, you know, the buyer wanted certainty of sale. We gave them that unconditional offer. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was listed, but nobody else really got to see yeah. it. Was that a commercial agent? Is it, yes. Is it, yeah, he is yeah. a commercial agent. Right, yeah. okay. So relationships are really helping there. Massively. Um, I don't think, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of residential agents in this area and there's a lot of chat in the sort of beginner property world about oh go and take all your agents a box of donuts and they'll give you all the deals out their top drawer like it, i don't see that happening ever we couldn't build a relationship with 30 different agents and and have that you know um level of familiarity with them but with commercial agents there's three or four that do any volume in stockport so it's much easier for us to be like a serious buyer to them yeah, and, and it's brilliant because you're talking there about specifically focusing in on Stockport. If you think you were looking in um, perhaps over more towards Liverpool, maybe even along the M62 to Leeds mm. and these areas, do you think you would still be able to find these deals? Or is that I'm le it's a leading question, really, because, you know, one can start spreading a bit thin. But have you started expanding out further and then decided we, to continue where you are? Or how's that? Yeah, we, we have. Um, so, I mean, the, the one that we had, the HMO that we that will not be an HMO with the planning issues, that was in sale. So Trafford, so like a couple of okay. boroughs along. Um, we, we keep it within like a 30 minute drive from our, our own experience. You know, we, we're going to keep the management of these in-house down the line. I don't yep. want anyone having an hour long drive each way to do a viewing. So um, there's, there's, there's definitely uh, a decision to keep them local. If we did decide to expand, could we still find deals? Yes, I think we could because relationships with agents is, is one part of it, but not not the only part of it. You know, something else I mentioned was trying to find opportunities that other people have maybe missed. How can we develop this and maximize yep. the value of it? So there are there are other things that would give us an advantage, although yeah, we'd be starting again with that relationship point of view. And that is a big part of of how we find deals. So it sure. would be it it would be a, a hindrance, but I don't think it would stop us. Okay, great. We're gonna come back to that later on about the the building first approach but just let's just dive into the commercial aspects so um you have got some units that are let out for commercial clients hmm. they when was the first one you did mike so that was um probably four or five years ago okay so reasonable period of time ago and was that by default was that a, did you find that actually no no that was a key part of the deal was the resi upstairs the most important you know how did you approach that yeah so um you'll, you'll be realizing by now jerry that i like to give context so forgive me for waffling no no i like context. Um, yeah this one this was interesting actually so two two reasons it was interesting one um we bought it with uh, a tenant in place on the ground okay. floor and we kept them we retained them and they're still there to this day wow, good um, it was called our, so uh, the, the project was IPI Barbershop and that was, uh, it came about because it was a barber. Yes, in the ground floor. Yeah. We're very creative <laughs> with our naming of our projects. Um, so yeah, they've, they, they stayed in there throughout the renovation work. Again, that's another conversation about, you know, the pros and cons of that. I would probably have uh, not chosen to do that again, but we, we made it work. Um, so they were there and, you know, we kind of inherited them with the building. The building itself, um, it was tenanted ground floor, vacant first floor office space. Uh, and it was just that office space that was available. It was only available to let. So landlord owned the building, was happy with the tenant on the ground floor and wanted to rent out this office space. 
office space, you know, in some areas still does well, in other areas just isn't really desirable. This was the latter. It'd been on the market for a couple of months. I said to an agent who I've got a relationship with, would they consider selling it? No, they want to get a tenant in place. Okay, fine. Parked it for a month, went back, followed up again and again and again. And eventually they said, yeah, they've still not found a tenant. This was maybe six months down the line. So they'll be paying business rates. They'll be paying standing charges on utilities. They'll be paying to ensure the building It's costing them every month. And it got to the stage where they were like, yeah, okay, we'll consider selling. What do you want to pay for it? And I think because we had been so persistent with those follow-ups, again, this never went on the market. Um, we made an offer that they were happy with and, uh, you know, we kind of, we, we secured it that way. So it was, again, you know, from a commercial point of view, looking for stuff that's available to let can often at some yeah. point come up for sale as well. Um, so yeah, that, that's how we acquired that one tenant already in situ, but actually, you know, the building wasn't even for sale when we first came across it. So a nice, a nice easy slide into commercial landlord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tenant was there, paid their rent every month. A few issues, you know, a few discussions about yeah. renovation works going on whilst they were trying to run their business and so on. But yeah, relatively simple start. Yeah, I've had that. Yeah, dust is often a problem apart from the noise. It's yeah. amazing where dust gets. To. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dust was a major factor. It was a barber shop, so you know they don't want dust settling down on yes. their uh, their clients' heads. But the other thing as well, obviously, from a, a building regs point of view, um, acoustic, you know, like the, the separation between commercial and residential from an acoustic point of view, from a, a fire point of oh, view, yeah. um, it's a lot easier to do this from underneath than it is to do it from above. So, uh, you know, we were in there tearing down their ceiling on a Friday night, trying to get the shop ready to reopen again on a Monday morning and that sort of stuff. Um, and, it, you know, it, it caused you, we were paying contractors double time to work night shifts and like it, it just it wasn't yeah. an ideal scenario for anyone but yeah we we, we got there yeah okay so then um, a few years later mm. you started looking at properties that actually there's a ground floor retail unit here for instance that might be slightly more challenging to to do in planning so and i'm making an assumption there mike i think that's how it worked and and you basically right okay now we're going to look for a commercial client how did you find that whole process? Was it alien to residential? Did you find that actually your agent buddies was the main solution there? How did In that terms feel? Of finding commercial tenants. Finding commercial tenants, um, working through leases, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It was, I, I mean, the, the the project that I'm thinking about specifically just now, we, 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 I think we've probably done a couple of times prior to this, but I'm thinking of the, the brewery project, yeah. which has got a great tenant in there now although our relationship with them is nowhere near as good as it was when we started out. And I think that was from us trying to be too flexible. Um, so we we had the tenant lined up before the work was complete. This was in a, a relatively popular kind of like secondary retail location. So off high street, a lot of redevelopment work going on, a lot of independent traders moving into the area. The type of location we quite like for commercial for commercial sake, you know, rather than sort of prime high street. Um, and we bought the building, word spread pretty quickly that, uh, you know, there was gonna be a new retail shop available there. Um, and a guy from a local business got in touch with us saying we'd be really interested in the space. Um, I, I, I knew of him, liked his business. We got chatty, friendly, and it was really a case of, oh, well, you know, what are you gonna do? Okay, well, we can, uh, we can redo the wiring drawings to make sure that there's, you know, sockets in the right place. Okay, you need drainage in the floor. Yeah, we can put that in. Um, what do you think about wall finishes and, and and that sort of stuff? And 
we felt like it was going to be this, you know, really nice, friendly, collaborative process to give them uh, a sort of turnkey solution that works for them. And we got there in the end, but um, I think with hindsight, I probably would far rather have just done like quite box and then put it on the market and find a tenant after the fact. The conversations, the back and forwards, them changing their mind, us wanting to keep on top of budgets, who's going to pay for this extra spend. It was a bit informal um, and, you know, a, a, a good lesson learned. But yeah, it was uh, something that I would refrain from in the future, I think. Yeah, it's so easy to do, isn't it? You're starting the process, you're kind of learning how it works, feeding your way through it, same with the client, with the leases and everything else. Did, did you find that you needed to bring a new, um, let's say, a new member to your power team to do these sorts of projects? No, perhaps we should have done, but we've typically just used so the the like the um, the solicitor firm that we use, for example, for the bulk of our conveyancing, uh, are familiar with dealing with commercial leases. So you know, relatively easy for them just to to keep doing that. Um, from a finance point of view, again, on the sort of commercial Terezi stuff, we were dealing with a broker who had good relationships with commercial lenders because we were getting commercial finance on our larger HMOs and some of our mixed use stuff. Um, so again, we, we just stuck with them. We've never really had any specific, this is what a commercial lease should look like uh, to maximize the value or to get the best finance options. Um, we've just kind of blustered our way through it. And I'm not saying that is the right way to do it. I'm just saying that, you know, it's kind of cards on the table that um, you can, you can make a few mistakes and uh, you know, it's everything is figure outable. Um, but no, we, 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 we didn't. And, uh, you know, we're kind of, we've, we've, we've learned by doing rather than, um, by, by looking for the most experienced people to, to guide us. And it, it probably wasn't the right way to go about it. So looking forward, uh, other projects you're assessing just now, which I'm sure you're still assessing projects mm. as you're, as you're out there looking, are you considering changing your approach next time round? How are you assessing demand if there's not existing tests? Cause it, it, you know, there's definitely low-hanging fruit often when you start a commercial development because there's people around, there's a, there's a need that needs satisfying. And you're if as long as you can make enough noise, you'll find them. But then you have to get more creative, right, beyond that. And it's really just trying to work out, well, if you're moving into a new area, what, what kind of demand is there? Is there anything you've been looking at or that you use? I know that you're in quite a small area you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what sort of things are you looking at for mitigating the risk on any commercial stuff in the future? I mean, I think um, the the location to me is key, um, and particularly given you know most of what we're doing is is mixed use. Um, it needs to it needs to be a place that people would like to live as well as a place where people would like to work. So that that kind of narrows it down. Um, you know, we're not buying industrial units. We're not buying, um, you know, sort of, uh, like I say, like prime high street mm-hmm. retail. What we like are these like village center locations where there's an existing like independent business community. It could be, you know, independent butchers and greengrocers. It could be cafes and bars. It could be, um, you know, the, the, the area uh, that 
um that the breweries and there's like you know you you just walk down there and you get a sense that there is a bit of a buzz it's a place yep. where where people would like to be so um you know it's it's not the only commercial stuff that works but again trying to stick to what what has worked for us in the past and what we know it is where you know there's there's a, a large residential population within walking distance um and there's there's surrounding retail offerings and i use that term loosely you know retails cafe bars all that yep. sort of stuff um and you know we're typically buying uh, a a vacant building within an established um an area with established demand rather than trying to go out and you know create a new uh, a new target destination for for people to go to so we're in some ways i guess we're being we're being pretty lazy right we're we're going where the people already are uh, and just trying to bring some of these these disused buildings back into use yeah so what when you're working with those potential new clients moving new people in under leases which i think is the main thing you're using contract what what have you felt looking back now are the main differences when we're in your resi hat and then do you find you're putting on a different hat now or you need to put on a different hat for the commercial? Yeah, I mean, resi stuff is so set in stone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, virtually everything is is a 12-month AST that, um, you know, you can you can download from a whole host of places, um, the NRLA or uh, the RLR, wherever, you know, or you use a letting agent and they've got their own. Like, it, it's pretty well defined what can and can't go in that uh and you know even if you put something in the tenancy agreement it doesn't really matter because uh like residential tenancy law overrides all of that anyway like resi tenants are well protected as they should be commercial um yes there is there is some uh consistency to it but you know in terms of the length of the lease the breaks the rent reviews um all of that was completely new to me and um you know, even still, we are finding that some lenders are, you know, what we initially thought was, okay, the longer the tenancy, the better. Um, you know, that that seems like a simple one, right? If we can get them to sign a 10-year lease versus a, a five-year lease or a three-year lease, then that's that's good. Um, but even still, you know, we find some lenders that are like, oh, yeah, but we don't like this type of tenant signing that length of lease with this number. It, it, <laughs> it, it just seems like trying to get that balance of all these different factors in the right order. Um, I don't know if there are any hard or fast rules because I, I am by no means an expert in in this regard at all. Um, so it's it's a completely different ballgame. It's much more, uh, I guess, open to negotiation and open to uh, the, the individuals to to come to terms. Um, and then you draw that up into a contract rather than saying, this is your residential AST. Yeah. And here you don't have a choice. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm often approaching with the fact that there are no rules apart from common law. You know, yeah. there, there really aren't any rules and, and you as a landlord and a tenant negotiate all that stuff. Yeah. And that's where those little nuances either add loads of value to the building or actually reduce the value of the building because you put in a clause you think was great, but actually for them or for, sorry, for an investor, it's not. It can be quite interesting how all those different things um, attribute to, to value. What's interesting, though, most of your stuff is single let, right? Yep. So that 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 keeps it a bit more contained. It's when you start getting multi-let and you get more about service charges and all those things that start making that slightly more complex. But if somebody was um, looking right now at doing their next resi development, they're thinking about having a commercial element, what what couple of things would you maybe say to them to consider uh, about the, the differences there that they should maybe think about twice? 
I mean, I guess, you know, one, one thing that, that we uh-huh. are always looking for is security. And, uh, you know, it's it's maybe uh, it, this, it, it probably is fairly standard. Right. But, um, you know, you you may hear, oh, uh, a lender are going to prefer a limited company over a, a sole trader. Well, yeah, fine. But if the uh, the lender does any sort of due diligence and they're like, hey, this limited company was set up three months ago, they've got no trading history like that. That's, you know, it's, it's virtually it's worthless. Still, yeah. So, um, you know, we're always making sure that we've got personal guarantees in, in place and um you know there's the liability on the, the the owners rather than just the company um so that was that's that's a simple thing um that you know just gives us a bit of peace of mind um that if, if something was to happen to the business we're still going to get paid until a new tenant is in place which is a nice place to be it's much easier to pursue commercial tenants for arrears than it is resi yep. um i think the the other thing as well is um from uh uh, a proportioning point of view um you know we went into this with a residential mindset and we wanted maximum residential space and then okay if we couldn't convert all of it because there's a street scene that needs to be retained the local authority are insistent on keeping some retail okay fine we'll just put in like a little you know 20 square meter shoebox of a shop at the front actually now like retail can be or you know again retail used very loosely like those village center um, units can be very profitable. The rents on them per square foot or per square meter can be very lucrative, but it needs to be the right volume of space for the type of tenant that's actually going to want to be there. And they're going to need things like toilet facilities, kitchen facilities, maybe like a staff room, storage, changing rooms, depending on what it is. So, you know, I've seen lots of examples of people really try to maximize the resi aspect and just talk in retail. But actually now we're thinking, no, let's like more space over to, to retail is actually better. And rather than maybe convert some of the ground floor to, to resi with uppers, um, you know, how can we, we, we find actually, you know, bigger, bigger spaces are what people are looking for because there's so many of these little uh, retail units available to let or to buy, um, you know, businesses that want to have, you know, to be able to seat 50 covers at lunch and dinner, like they, they need space for kitchen and storage. And like, so um actually going the other way now we're thinking no how can we get more of this as commercial um because the numbers work and because we find that longer term that's what the the type of tenants that we're dealing with are looking for yeah it can be and the other the other thing that can affect that is business isn't it there's a few different parts to that jigsaw of making space attractive and making sure that you understand what business rate valuations are based on a square meter, it's just how they generally measure it. And therefore, if you build a unit to this size, how is that going to affect the client for business rates point of view? Are they going to be able to get business rates relief? It depends on the size, doesn't it? But it's interesting the amount of residential units you do see in a lovely block of new flats, whatever, and the, and the commercial unit just is the token thing and just won't let. Yeah. And it's just they haven't quite worked out what the demand is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can you can get a sense for that but you know we we've never gone after the the sort of the 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 blue chip the the plcs you know we're not looking for gregs or the co-op or anyone to take but you know if if that's what you're after like you can go in and most of them will have something on their website about you know their their land acquisition saying this is the type of site that we're looking for subway franchises will tell you what you need as a minimum so that's a you know a, a sort of rough minimum space that you need for like cafe type stuff so you can you can find this information um and yeah, you don't want to be left with a, a a retail unit that you just you can't find a tenant for. So it definitely you know pays to to do a bit of research into that before you commit to your plans. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so 
Last bit I want to talk about that we'd spoke about this briefly at the start. So you've done HMO, SA, buy to let, some commercial units. Your approach to building is kind of evolved. And as you become, as we all become familiar with more different strategies, it allows us to focus on finding undervalued properties and then working out the right use, right? Rather than maybe going in with a cookie cutter. Yeah. And, you know, how long is that? Can you can you talk talk us through how that's come about and how long that's kind of taken so you now have that building first approach? Yeah, it, it, it came about, I suppose, when we were looking to replace corporate incomes, it was very narrow focus on HMOs. We kind of, you know, we, we didn't know a huge amount else. That was what had worked for us in the past. And we thought we'll just do more and more of this um, and that will that will get us to our goal. And we, we moved into the larger commercial buildings to convert into HMOs. Um, Victoria, my wife, has got a much better eye than me for attractive buildings, buildings in the right location, buildings that are, you know, they've got potential to, to be something. And I was there busy, like scribbling down my my, my dimensions. Trying, it, it doesn't work. We can't we can't get an HMO in here. The room's too small or, uh, you know, there's not enough communal space or, you know, whatever reason it would be um and we we kind of had these great buildings that were available considerably lower than equivalent residential stuff that we didn't want to just toss away so that's i suppose when we started to think well you know could we do anything else with it so it was fairly organic just thinking can we do anything else with this building that's got great bones you know nice character good location good position um but for for one reason or another just doesn't make sense as as an hmo so that's when we started to explore okay could we convert it into flats could we i mean have flats in sa it's pretty much the same thing in terms of layout you maybe need a bit more storage space your cleaner cupboard and that in sa that you maybe wouldn't have in single lets but you know more or less that you know converting it into flats or uh, mixed use resi uh, uppers with some sort of commercial offering on the ground floor so yeah, it was just, you know, the, the I guess it came, we found the buildings, we wanted them, but it didn't work for our model. So we had to, we had to pivot. Okay. So what, what characteristics do you look for in deals now then? Now that you've got more strategy options. I think location continues to be the big driver for us, mm-hmm. both from a convenience point of view, but then on a more sort of micro level, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, are people actually going to want to live here? There, you know, Stockport is a big place. There are plenty of buildings that could be converted here, but um, what we are looking for really is to go towards the top end of the market in terms of GDVs and rental income. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get that if there isn't some sort of offering within walking distance with you know bars, restaurants, coffee shops, with public transport links into Manchester. So location is always a, a key driver for us, which allows us to keep super focused. We don't need to spread our net yep. so wide. I guess also we're looking for, this is more Victoria's cup of tea, but typically, you know, reasonably at least attractive buildings. <laughs> they, you, you don't like know, ugly ones. <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's a subjective thing, but, you know, you want the valuers to show up and say, oh, this is a nice building. You want your future tenants or buyers to show up and say, oh, this is a nice building. Like you can do a lot to the interior of a building, but if the place, you know, if it's if it's surrounded by derelict buildings if it's so like something it, it needs it, it's kind of hard to put your finger on it but you, you you just you know right it's that sort of like uh the curb appeal it, there needs to be something about the building i, I i'm gonna push back on that because i because you mentioned earlier on cash flow mm. right and you mentioned that capital appreciation was the secondary to that and and i have found sometimes the uglier ones in fact yeah 
almost exclusively the uglier ones tend to make better cash flow than the pretty ones. Probably, but that wouldn't look so good on Instagram now, Jerry. <laughs> that there is that, and that's why you do internal shots on those buildings. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get that, and you know, everyone, everyone is different. I guess. Um, I think you know, from a an aesthetic point of view, we've got a, a nineteen seven, an ugly nineteen seventies building that we're in the process of converting into nine apartments. Yeah. And we could have done that with a relatively straightforward internal fit out. Our choice on that is to, I think I mentioned this earlier, effectively tear down the external walls and, and rebuild them so that the windows are more residential proportions, yeah, yeah. the entrances are more residential. So it doesn't look like an office that's being converted into flats. It looks like a block of flats. Now, that will absolutely cost us more money than the, the alternative. We will get a little bit more rent, but I mean, there's a ceiling on what a one-bedroom apartment and a two-bedroom apartment will rent for. Yeah. Um, the GDV, okay, the, the value might uh, give us a bit of an uplift because it looks a bit nicer. But again, they're going to be looking at square meter, square footage uh, prices for, for resi in the area. So that is more, I suppose, of a, 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 a personal choice that we want to create a building that, that we are proud of and will still be proud of in 20 or 30 years yeah. when that continues to be in our portfolio rather than driving past it thinking, oh, God, why did we do that? Let's get rid yeah. of it. So, and, like, and they cut, to be fair, what's happening there is you're 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 absolutely with your residential hat on, and I've got my commercial hat on, and you're looking at it from the point of view of somebody sleeping in this. I'm looking mm -hmm. at it from the point of view of somebody working in it, and it yeah, is a, different, a warehouse. Just a needs thing, to be a warehouse, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, the, I mean that there is that aspect to it. We need to make money. We're doing this to make money. But if we can make money whilst creating nice places for people to live, whilst improving Stockport as uh, yeah. an aesthetic, Stockport's you know there's there's pretty parts to it, there's ugly parts to it. If we can improve some of the ugly parts, then you know it's it's additional benefits over and above. Does it make us enough money? Fine. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Um. And and let's see what else we can do to enhance the the, the place that we live at the same time. Okay. So we've gone for location. 100%. Yep. Um, curb appeal. Mm -hmm. Any other characteristics you're looking out for? I think it, it, it comes down to design. It comes down to being able to look into a build, walk into a building and, you know, almost take it back to the four walls. And I think mm -hmm. people get overwhelmed with the, the existing layout of a building. All of that can be changed, more or less. Um, and, you know, just like, again, thinking what what can this become it's a blank sheet of paper like your commercial leases um you know we we've got uh, a chance we're going to be spending a lot of money on these buildings like we we've got an opportunity to really kind of go back to the drawing board and and, and start from scratch so um kind of going into everything with that okay it might again it might cost us a little bit more but like let's let's think about the best the best use of this building for for the community that it's part of um it is, you know, honestly, when, when we are sourcing deals, this sounds a bit airy fairy, but a lot of it is with our heart as much as it is with our head. Because we're, we're not we're not buying hundreds of projects every year. We're buying half a dozen. Um, so, you know, we can buy buildings that that, that we like and that we, we enjoy being involved with. So, I, I mean, obviously, there, there's all the financial stuff. You know, it, there, it's a spreadsheet exercise first and foremost, but... Um, you know, it, it it needs to it needs to tick some of these emotional boxes for us as well. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just how we how we approach. Well, no, it. it's great because what you're not saying is it needs to be an HMO. It needs to be a, a buy to let. You're not going in with a cookie cutter approach. It's right. Here's the building. 
we'll, we'll try and ignore the current characteristics. What can we, what's the best way we can develop this out? Make sure we maintain curb appeal and it's within a distance that our team can look after it. So that, yeah. that you know, those, those are the key things you've mentioned. Which is quite yeah. interesting. It's not not necessarily about, as I said, finding a cookie or fitting in a cookie cutter, but also not necessarily 100% about this must make X amount of cash flow. Well, there is a minimum. Um, so we 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 typically look for a minimum 20% return on our cash. So yeah, you know, once we've refinanced, will we get paid back within five years? If it ticks that box, that's that's kind of you know if it, if it's better than that, great. But um, you know if it's a case of well, it could make us 40% without redoing the facade, or it can make us 30% with redoing the facade. Okay, well, 30% is still above our 20% target, so let's go for the the one that gives us the money that we need, but also makes us feel better about the project long-term. Yeah, okay, brilliant. So what's next for you guys? You're talking about 500 units, 500 doors, as some people call it. Yeah, 500 doors. That I mean, that that a unit could be a room in an HMO. It could be a one-bedroom yeah. flat. It could be so. Uh, it could be a commercial unit. Our our view on that is 500 new. We want to create. You know, we're not just going to take a house and turn it into an HMO. We've done that in the past. It got us to a point, but I want to create new housing for people. Um, whilst make again, you know, first and foremost, let's make some money. Secondly, okay, can what what can we do to to improve yeah. the the community that we live in? Um, so, uh, a lot of commercial Terezi developments, a lot of well, probably less new build, but commercial that might have a new build aspect to it, yeah. like that warehouse that we demolished. Um, so that's that's a number that we are shooting for. I don't care if we don't hit it; it's just it's a nice target to get everyone excited. Um, and then diversification as well, predominantly HMO focused, which got us the the income that we needed. Now that we're at that stage um the balance will shift over the coming years to majority single let um as well as more commercial in those uh in those kind of relevant locations you know it's it it it, it gives us um less risk which is a nice yeah. thing to be particularly during covid at the different times in covid we saw some some things do well some things do uh do poorly and then it, it totally switched so just having that stability of income uh, that's not dependent on the HMO side of things will be um, will be nice. So, yeah, growth and uh, diversity, I suppose, are the two focuses for us. Fantastic. And when does boating come back into your life? It depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a few years off. I think we will. So we sold the boat with a view to coming back here for a couple of years. Whether the next step is another boat um, or another adventure that maybe is in a ski resort somewhere. Uh, that would probably be my preference at the moment. Um, but I think we're going to uh, be here for, you know, at least two or three years, if not, you know, five or so, uh, maybe have another kid, get them to the stage where if we go sailing, they can enjoy it. If we go skiing, they can enjoy it. And then think about where we go from there. So no, no immediate plans to, to escape just yet. Awesome. Right. Skiing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I won't tell you I'm going away tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of people told me I, I don't think we're going to make it away. This we've just got back, so I don't think I can justify a ski holiday just yet. But, but it's 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 something that you know we enjoy. We like that mountain environment, and we went to um, the French Alps over summer for the first time this year, and and loved what it had to offer oh, as a oh, summer fantastic. resort as well. So, yeah, I think as a place to live, um, it, yeah, we, we'd we'd definitely it's 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 on our list. Cool. Right. Okay. So last thing, um, mm. where can people find you and follow what you're up to? I'll put this um, in the show notes, of course. But yeah, if you could maybe just tell people yeah. where 
they can find the podcast what they need to look up and instagram and all the other places Yep. So, I mean, everywhere we are inside property investing. Um, so on Instagram is probably where we're most active from a social point of view and sharing what we're up to. Uh, podcast, Inside Property Investing on all the usual podcast outlets, wherever you can find Jerry, you can find us. Um, and the website, if you just Google Inside Property Investing as well, they're probably, um, you know, the, the three best places to start. Yeah. Mike, this has been brilliant. Thanks so much. It's been worth the wait. I've even, I think we've created a new oxymoron there with um, putting together right move and off market in the same sentence. <laughs> I mean, I didn't come up with it, but I see it more often than I would like to. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Until next time, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jerry. It's been great. Brilliant. Thank you. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast. And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be a first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.